What's up, boxing fans? Welcome to The Neutral Corner, episode 103 for the week of December 2nd. New issue of Boxing Monthly is out on the shelf, so go check it out. On the cover, the heavyweight fight everybody wants to see. I don't think we're going to see it till the end of probably 2018, beginning of 2019. And um, I do think we're going to see it, though. I really do think we're going to see it. So, was on vaca <clears throat> vacation for the past week, as you can Tell my voice is a little scratchy just from um, all the talking and traveling and eating and drinking. It was a good, good time. Went all around California. This is a massive state. It is really its own country. We drove up one coast of California, around the top, down the other coast, and saw everything in between. Drove over, I think, 13, 1,400 miles. Extra bonus points if you know which location this is behind me. If you guessed in the comments section below, extra bonus points for you. But man, it was a great, great time. Back to the grind though, back in LA and a lot to catch up on. So let's get to some news and notes. Okay, so speaking of the cover of this latest issue of Boxing Monthly, Anthony Joshua. Back on the cover. He's been on the cover a few times. And uh, he made some, some headlines, at least on social media, right before I took off and while I was gone uh, on my vacation. Having some direct messages, private messages, I think it was on Instagram with Eddie Chambers for some reason. Um, they just don't like each other. They actually have a little beef that goes back a little while. And uh, AJ made some off-color comments. And um, when I say off-color, I mean that figuratively and literally, making a comment about black supremacy, black people being the superior race that had absolutely no place in the conversation they were having. Now, I will address this. I will address this. Um, I, I, think, I feel it needs to be addressed. I did tweet about it. And obviously, you know, no media people have tried to tackle it. They're deathly afraid. Uh, Eddie Hearn has tried to sweep it under the rug. So um, I will definitely talk about it, but I know there's a lot of you out there who don't want to hear about it, don't want to talk about that subject matter. So I will do it in a private rant video coming up this week. I haven't heard anything about that case. If you guys have heard anything, if, if Eddie Hearn's done any interviews addressing it or AJ has, please let me know. Please post some links in the comments section below in this video. Um, but I, I haven't heard anything, man. I, I think it's just kind of being swept under the rug, but I wanna break it all down for you in the rant video. We'll do that later in the week, okay? Uh, other heavyweight news. Saying in the UK, David Hay pulls another muscle, another muscle tear, and uh, extremely injury prone guy. Apparently this was a freak accident going up or down some stairs. I didn't even read into it much. I really don't care. But I think he tore a bicep and now his December 17th rematch with Tony Bellew has been canceled. They might reschedule it for next year. Personally, I hope they don't. I don't care. I just wish David Hay would go away already. Uh, Bellew is still scheduled to fight. At the time I'm recording this, still scheduled to fight December 17th because a lot of tickets were sold for that event. A lot of money has already been put into it, promoting it. So he's scheduled to face TBA. Who knows if he's gonna fight or not, we'll see. Maybe it gets scrapped, I don't know. But uh, remember that heavyweight rant video I did a couple weeks ago, and I actually posted it as the trailer on my channel right now, where I talked about, I thought, I said several times in the video that Tony Bellew would win the rematch. So that was my original thought. That was my original inclination when I brought up the rematch in my rant video about the heavyweight scene right now. And a lot of you jumped down my throat and said, man, there's no way 
that Bellew is going to win that rematch. It's going to be David Hay. He was winning before he got injured in the first fight, blah, blah, blah. And my whole point was, and I should have expressed this better in my video, but I did in the comments, that David Hay could likely get injured in the rematch. And here it is, the rematch won't even happen because he got injured. Why does David Hay get injured so much? Is it inactivity? Is it drugs that he may use to enhance his performance? Is it a combination of things? Is it poor technique, poor training, poor lifestyle in between fights? I don't know, man, but the guy sure gets injured a lot and he's a massive waste of time. He was a fine cruiserweight. I think he's mostly been all bark and no bite as a heavyweight. 31 fights in a 15 year pro career. I think he went pro in 2002. He's had 31 professional fights. Extremely hand-selected opponents. He's fought one elite Hall of Fame, all-time great level opponent and was completely dominated and shut out 12 rounds to zero. So he, he wasted a year of that fighter's life, Vladimir Klitschko. I can't remember if it was 2008, 2009, 2010, somewhere in there where they negotiated and Vlad kind of sat around for almost a year waiting for Hay. He completely wasted a year of heavyweight boxing fans' lives and Vladimir Klitschko's life uh, before they eventually fought. And he just pretty much wasted most of Tony Bellew's 2017. Uh, they fought early this year. I can't remember if it was February, March, and all the negotiations and everything for the rematch, the training and all that that goes into it, and now it doesn't happen. David A has done this to several fighters. He's not dependable. He, for all the talking he does, he very rarely backs it up. I will give him credit. He won me back a little bit when he fought hurt against Bellew. He wasn't fighting a heavyweight. He wasn't fighting an elite level heavyweight when that happened. He was fighting a cruiserweight. Uh, but still, I'll give him credit for that. He showed some toughness. Other than that, though, man, I just don't give a damn about anything David Hay says or does. Just go away already, dude. We don't care. Okay, on to some, uh, some really sad news. Undefeated Bantamweight prospect Cesar Diaz died in a car crash in Palmdale, California. It's here in Southern California on November 24th. Uh, he went pro just last July, and he was a prospect that Golden Boy, was, Golden Boy Promotions was really, really excited about. He, he had fought seven times, was 7-0 as a pro with six knockouts, don't know much about the incident. The way it's being reported makes me curious if it involved drunk driving, though. And I'm not saying that to bash the young man. I don't know. I haven't heard anything, so please don't go spreading rumors. I'm just saying the way that I, the news reports I saw, they were being very, very selective in their language. But apparently he lost control of a vehicle, swerved to the other side of the street, and hit an object. I don't know if it was a phone pole or what it was. I think his girlfriend was in the car with him. She's badly injured, but still alive in the hospital still, I think. And I believe he died right there on the scene. So uh, it was a really, really bad accident. Sad whenever a young person dies like that. I'm curious to know what caused uh, the accident. It was not at night. It was during the day. Uh, I don't. Maybe him and, and the girlfriend were arguing. Maybe there was something in the road. None of that's been discussed. But when... Somebody loses control of a, of a vehicle in broad daylight and swerves to the other side of the road and hits an object. A lot of times that involves something funky. I don't know. So um, either way, regardless of how it happened, really, really sad news. A, a young man with everything 
uh, in front of them in, in life. And, and just sad anytime something like that happens. Okay, on to wacky news. Manny Pacquiao calls out Conor McGregor on Instagram. Now, I know some of you guys were talking about this. Do I really, really need to go into any of this? Look, even at this stage of his career, obviously Pacquiao beats Conor McGregor, but who cares? And the difference between Floyd and McGregor and Manny and McGregor is that Manny's not going to bring the business and the money that Floyd did. Uh, Floyd was the A-plus side, or at least the A-side against McGregor. You could make an argument that Pacquiao is still the A-side, but it's it's like A-minus, B-plus. You know what I mean? And I just don't, with all the trouble that Manny's had with the media here in America because of some of his comments uh, re- regarding gay people and some of the religious zealotry and all that, the sponsorships and all that, it won't be the same here. Is Conor going to go to the Philippines and do that fight? No. I don't see this fight ever happening. Everybody and their mother right now is calling out Conor McGregor because they want an easy payday. And, you know, any trained boxer that's rated in the top 100 in any division around where McGregor fights at will beat him in a boxing match. So everyone and their mother is going to call the guy out. I'm getting sick of boxers, whether they be former boxers turned promoters like Oscar De La Hoya, former boxers turned commentators like Paulie Malignaggi, or former boxers turned politicians like Manny Pacquiao calling this guy out. Just shut up already. Nobody wanted to see him fight Floyd Mayweather. Nobody wants to see you fight him. Just shut up. Okay. Now, some fights coming together in January and February 2018. Guys, a lot of you out there are really, really down on 2018. You think it's going to be a really, really down year because we had such a good year in 2017. What I'm saying is it's not going to be as good as 2017. We're not going to get as many super fights, big, big events like we did this year. That's going to be pushed till 2019. But we're going to have a busy schedule with a lot going on. Already, January, February is filling up. January 20th, Errol Spence versus Lamont Peterson. Uh, Spence's first defense of his IBF welterweight title. That will be on Showtime. Big, big surprise in New York. So obviously this fight should have taken place late this year. But Uncle Al and and those guys, they wanted the Showtime money. Showtime's budget is locked up. So they pushed it back to early next year. That's the way Uncle Al has run his business. And he's not the only one who does it. It's just the way they run their business more so than any other American promoter. Uh, I think it's a good quality matchup, a good quality fight, a good first defense for Spence after beating Kell Brook. It's a solid defense for him. Again, fight should have happened months ago, but hey, I'll take it. No venue yet, but they say in New York, come on, we know it's going to be in Barclays, right, where they have that deal and they're papering the arena. Okay, a week after that, January 27th, Golden Boy Promotions is putting together a card that will be at the Forum in Inglewood, just outside of Los Angeles. Lucas Matisse and Jorge Linares are both fighting uh, very overmatched, poor opponents in that card. But two good fighters, two exciting fighters, and I think the style matchup should be pretty, pretty entertaining you know, decent card that they're putting together. Uh, bang for your buck if you're going to that card at the forum. There's going to be several undefeated Golden Boy prospects on the undercard. So I get it. It makes sense. February 3rd, Gilberto Ramirez against Habib Ameb. 
I have no idea who that is. Defending his WBO super middleweight title. This will be on ESPN, part of Top Ranks ESPN thing. And Andy Ruiz is supposed to make his comeback on that card as well. It'll be interesting to see uh, how many pounds over or under 300 pounds Andy Ruiz weighs for that fight. Gilberto Ramirez. A lot of people are excited about this guy. I, I just am not that excited. I don't get this choice of opponent. If this is a stay busy fight, why wait so long after his last fight to do a stay busy fight like this? What's the plan with Gilberto Ramirez? I get it. There's a super middleweight tournament going on right now, and you got to keep him busy while the other elite opponents or elite fighters, not, not even all the elite fighters at super middleweight are in that tournament, but several of them are. But what are you doing, man? I, I just, ugh, we'll see. For Ramirez, he should mop the floor with this guy. If he doesn't, it's a bad look. And maybe that's the whole point of this matchmaking. Maybe it's supposed to make him look exciting and drum up some more interest. Because his last couple fights, he just hasn't set the world on fire. February 17th, we get George Groves versus Chris Eubank. World Boxing Super Series semifinals. It's set up for Manchester. Uh, for This will be for the WBA Super Middleweight title as well. Now this is what I'm talking about. That the World Boxing Super Series, I, I've talked about this before, the cruiserweight tournament is the loaded tournament with all the elite level cruiserweights. Okay, super middleweight tournament, doesn't, it's missing a few of them, like Gilberto Ramirez, like David Benavidez. But a lot of the fighters are from the UK, and you're going to get some of these UK matchups. And let's, let's face it, the super middleweight division for years, there's been several outstanding British super middleweights and European super middleweights. So it makes sense that it's so heavy with those fighters. And this fight between George Groves and Chris Eubank is going to be a lot of fun. That atmosphere is going to be sick. If there is any way I could get out to the UK for that one, I will. I just don't know if it's possible, guys. But if I can get out there for that one, that would be one worth making the trek. Also, February 24th, the Superfly 2 card is coming back to Los Angeles. I don't know if it's going to be StubHub. It might be StubHub Center. Could be the Forum. There's other venues being discussed as well, but probably coming to Los Angeles. And um, I can't wait for that one. A couple of fights being tossed around, discussed, uh, but they're not finalized yet. So more to come with that. But man, that's a pretty decent lineup for January, February. Usually the boxing schedule doesn't get going till March, sometimes April. So if we're getting all that action in January and February, and there's going to be more cards filling in other dates those two months, we're off to a good start next year, man. So I'm telling you, silver lining, keep hope for 2018. All right, let's talk about what took place over the last two weeks, all the action from around the world. On Friday, November 17th, Anthony Durrell scored a technical decision after six rounds against, against Dennis Dolan in Flint, Michigan. Fight was stopped due to a headbutt. Typical with the Durrells, there just seems to be something about the guys where a lot of their fights end in fouls and controversial, weird stuff. I, I, I don't know, but good for Durrell. He gets a win here, keeps moving forward. Did this do anything for his career other than earn him a couple of dollars? Not really. The following day, Saturday, November 18th, Thomas Tomas Adamek scored a unanimous decision over 10 rounds against Fred Kasi in Poland. 
wins the Polish heavyweight title. Uh, again, for, for Adamek, I guess in his home country, he wins a local title there. It's good for him in that respect. But other than that, what did this do for his career? Little to nothing, but get him a win. He's had some tough losses recently. Adamek really needs to hang him up, man. Really, really needs to hang him up. Uh, I hope him and his team are not trying to wiggle him into an, another title shot coming up because that could be really, really dangerous for the guy. I hope this was like one last hurrah. Remember last year he announced his retirement. I believe it was last year. It might have even been early this year, but I think 2016. Uh, look, it's time. It's time. The guy's taking a lot of punches, man. In Belfast, Northern Ireland, Carl Frampton made his return to the ring, squeaks by Horacio Garcia by the scores of 96-93, 97-93, and 98-93. Interesting scores there. I think 96-93 was the right score. I don't understand the 97 and 98-93. It's it's kind of weird that one fighter got the same score three times, the other fighter got three different scores three times. But either way, uh, Carl Frampton hadn't fought in 10 months since his majority decision lost to Santa Cruz. I think that was back in January. Yeah, uh, this was the first fight with his new team. He started well. He looked good early, but in the middle rounds, Garcia worked his way back into it. And I thought Garcia won most of the late rounds. I thought he worked his way back into the fight, or at least several of the late rounds. Frampton didn't look great late, and technically he was ruled knocked down in the seventh round, even though it looked more like a slip. But he was punched during the slip, so they called it a knockdown. Really wasn't hurt. It was a flash knockdown. Uh, interesting note here. Saul Canelo Alvarez was in attendance to watch Garcia, who's a stable mate of his. So, look, Frampton gets in the win column again. He's, okay, you got, you, you got the rust worked out. He needs to get back in the ring early next year. Not too many bumps and bruises taken in this fight. When I say early next year, guys, I'm talking January, February. He needs to get back in the ring. Seriously. Also on this card, Jerwin Ancaja scores a TKO 6 over Jamie Conlon. That's Michael Conlon's brother. Uh, dropped Conlon four times. Ancaja is now 28-1-1 with 19 knockouts. This was the third defense of his IBF Superflyweight title. There are rumors that he might get added to that Superfly 2 card I just talked about, February 24th. Let's cross our fingers and... Knock on wood that that happens. I really hope it happens because that would be awesome. This guy is must-see TV. So that title that he won last year in the Philippines, uh, he's defended it this year three times, as I mentioned, in Macau, Brisbane, and now Belfast. This guy is willing to stamp his passport. Let's stamp it for the USA and get him on Superfly 2 because he's one of the more exciting little fighters out there, and he seems to be getting better with every fight as he's traveled the world a little bit and got that title it just seems to have his confidence improving with each performance looks really really good man also a big big ko on this card zolani titi scores a ko1 on the first punch landed against fellow south african siboniso gonya wins the wbo bantamweight title it was a right hook and i just mentioned i was on vacation um, I, I can't remember where I was, man, but I was somewhere. I was probably at a bar. <laughs> and they were showing it on ESPN. They were showing the knockout. And there were several, just those stupid, tacky ESPN sports shows where 
guys show highlights and talk about it, and they're usually cornball. They actually showed this, and they rarely talk about boxing. So that was uh, pretty cool. It only happened 11 seconds in. I can't think, a couple of you have asked me, I can't think of a quicker knockout in a title fight. And I've done a little research, and I can't find one. This might be the, the fastest knockout in a title fight ever. Also on the 18th in Las Vegas, Julian J. Rock Williams scored a unanimous decision over Ishe Smith over 10 rounds on a PBC card. Scores were 97-93, 98-92, 99-91. I thought the 97-93 scorecard felt right. Um, J-Rock didn't set the world on fire in this fight, but Ishe Smith is a slippery, meh, I won't say slick, just a awkward kind of guy. Knows how to survive and stink the joint out, and he has some quality wins on his record. So for J-Rock to get past Ishe Smith, good fight for him, good win for him. Didn't look great, not trying to say he looked awesome or set the world on fire, but a good solid win for him that he can build on. I'd like to see more progression from J-Rock. I've kind of seen a plateau, the same kind of thing over and over and over from him. I want to see some improvement. I want to see them start working on new things and trying new things. I kind of just see him doing the same thing over and over and over. And against a guy like Ishe Smith, okay, like I get it. Uh, you, you kind of beat that guy just through a war of attrition over rounds. But against some of the more dynamic fighters in that division, he's going to have to show more wrinkles to his game, man. He's going to have to have different speed, different pitches, if you will, if you want to compare him to a pitcher, right? If everything is a change-up, well, someone's going to come with a fastball. You know what I'm saying? Like He's just got to add more wrinkles to his game. Tuesday, November 21st in St. Petersburg, Florida. Not St. Petersburg, Russia, but Florida. It was a PBC card where Devon Alexander wins a unanimous decision over Walter Castillo in a 10-rounder. Dropped him in the second round. I thought it was pretty much a shutout. A couple of the judges gave Castillo a round or two, but it was a shutout, basically. For Alexander, it was his first fight since October 2015. And... Um, a lot of people don't know this about Alexander. You know, he really hasn't talked about it publicly that much. But apparently he became addicted to painkillers and was addicted to them for a few years. I, I think he sustained an injury. Maybe it was in the Maidana fight. It was somewhere around that time in his career. Uh, this goes back maybe to 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. It might have even went before that. I'm just off the top of my head here. But he ended up going to rehab for eight months and he's been clean and sober now for over a year so good for him man and I gotta say he looked a little rejuvenated in this fight you know he looked he looked pretty sharp for a guy who's been out of the ring for that long yeah the opponent was tailor-made for him but he looked like a guy who had cleaned himself up a little bit looked sharper than we'd seen him in some other uh, performances you know before going back to 2014 2015 it makes sense now you know, so good for him, man. It's good when you can see a guy uh, admit that he's having issues like that, clean himself up, and get back to doing what he loves. Now, do I see Devon, Devon Alexander um, doing anything big in the welterweight division? No. But who knows? Maybe he could work himself into a title eliminator type of fight or something like that where he can make some money. Uh, do I see him challenging for a title or doing anything like that? No. But he's still a name. And some of these other PBC prospects and stuff, he can be used 
to help build some of those guys up. He's still a very, very serviceable, skillful welterweight. So good for him, man. Um, also on this card, undefeated welterweight prospect Miguel Cruz, who's from that area in Florida, won in the co-feature. And now Saturday, November 25th, there was a few cards. I got to start with this one over, though, in, um, in Germany, where Manuel Char wins a unanimous decision over 12 rounds against Alexander Ustinov, two very lackluster heavyweights who really have never amounted to much especially Ustinov. Char wins, wins a vacant WBA heavyweight title. And now due to legal obligations uh, with the WBA tied up with Fresno Kendo and his team and all these lawsuits and stuff that went back and forth for years, now Char has to fight Fresno Kendo next. So next year, guys, Manuel Char and Fresno Kendo, who hasn't fought since 2014, are going to fight for the WBA Heavyweight Championship of the World. Now, all this was announced just hours before Char and Ustinov fought. And originally, the WBA, I'm not even going to say the guy's name, the president of the WBA, I'm, just, I'm so disgusted with him right now, uh, told the media that this was not going to be for the WBA title. But then, hours before the fight, announced that it was... The scores, if you care, were 115-112, 115-111, 116-111, and Ustinov was knocked down in the eighth. So a good quality performance by Char, who proves he's better than Ustinov, right? Interesting note here, Char has always been fat. He's a blubbery, fat heavyweight, not the most disciplined guy. Only weighed 230 pounds for this fight, and that was light for him. In fact... It was the lightest weight of his entire career. Entire career. He's weighed in the 240s for all of his losses. He has three or four losses, and he's been in the 240s, I think mid to high 240s for all of them. The first loss of his career when he fought Vitaly Klitschko in a fight, you know, title opportunity that he did not deserve at all, he weighed in the 240s. So he's 230 now fighting Ustinov. So at least, at least we can say for Char that he took this fight more seriously than any other fight in his career, at least we can give him that much. So technically, Char is the first heavyweight from Germany to win a heavyweight world title since Max Schmeling did in the 1930s. Big, big difference there. Schmeling won the actual heavyweight championship of the world and beat the greatest heavyweight ever in his career. When he beat Joe Lewis, look, I rate Joe Lewis as the number one all-time great heavyweight. I rate him above Ali. Some people don't like that, but I do it for a bunch of reasons. If you guys would like to know why, let me know in the comments section and I'll do a rant video about it. But I think Joe Lewis is the best heavyweight ever, considering what he accomplished at that time and the path he set for other fighters and other athletes and other sports to follow him. They would not have had the success they had if it weren't for uh, the, the trailblazing efforts of Joe Lewis. But Max Schmeling had a win over him and was the legitimate heavyweight champion for a while. So let's not compare Manuel Char to Max Schmeling, okay? That, that's a little crazy. But technically speaking, he is the first German heavyweight to win a world title since Schmeling. So take from that what you will. But again, early next year, Char versus Frezza Kendo. In his first uh, WBA heavyweight 
title defense will, will fight Fresno Kendo. And I met the president of the WBA outside the forum last time I was there, and he was a nice guy, said a bunch of great things to me, made a bunch of promises about the WBA, cleaning this up, cleaning that up, and then this happens. I just, the WBA, man, they are the laughing stock of boxing, and that's saying something. In Thailand, also November 25th, Shayapan Monsri won a unanimous decision over 12 rounds against Japanese fighter Tatsuya Fukuhara to defend his WBC minimum weight title, or strawweight if you prefer, for the eighth time. Monsri is now 49-0 with 17 knockouts. That means he's one fight away from tying TBE, two fights away from being the new improved TBE. And I was joking about this on Twitter today and uh, having some fun with it, trolling some of you guys. But, you know, interesting parallels. TBE, Floyd Mayweather, never left America. And Moonsri has never left Thailand. But one big difference, Floyd Mayweather didn't do Vada drug testing. And in fact, there was a lot of red flags around him and some smoking guns that were suppressed by the corrupt Nevada State Athletic Commission and his homies there. Monsri is in Vada's clean boxing program. So, hey, in that respect, he might already be TBE. He might be the new TBE. Do we call Monsri new TBE or Thai TBE? I don't know. We got, we, got, we got to create a hashtag for him, guys. Let me know. Madison Square Garden Theater, HBO Boxing. It was the return of Sergei Kovalev who scores a TKO2 win over Vashislav Shabransky, knocked him down twice in the first round and once in the second round. Pretty much every big punch he landed moved Shabransky and neurologically wobbled him. His legs were bad from the first right hand that connected in the first round, never recovered from that, and it was a grazing shot. Just Shabransky's chin, I think, was always pretty good. This is a guy that I covered back in the amateurs. Uh, with the Los Angeles Matadors, the World Series of Boxing cards here. So I got a good look at Shabransky back in like 2010, 2011. And I saw what he did good and what he didn't do so good. Always had a good chin. But remember when he fought Sullivan Barrera last year, or was that early this year? I, my dates are blending together, guys. Uh, I think Barrera cracked that chin. And one thing Shabransky does not do well is defense. And he does not move his head and his distance is bad. He gets punches off and stays in range. He doesn't get punches off and back out or move to the side, doesn't pivot, doesn't do any of that. He comes forward and throws punches. That's what he does. And it worked against a certain level of light heavyweights, but now against the elite level guys who do know distance and range and timing, and Kovalev has very underrated athleticism and boxing skills, this was just a matchup. Uh, just a, a disaster for Shabransky. So uh, Kovalev, you know, he wins the vacant WBO light heavyweight title in this fight. It's the first win since back-to-back -back losses to Andre Ward. You guys know how I feel about the first Ward fight, but technically in the books, back-to-back -back losses. In his first fight without John David Jackson. Now, did Kovalev look rejuvenated? Did he look better and improved since the Ward fights? No, this was perfect matchmaking. I thought Shabransky would give him three or four rounds. I was surprised to see it. Really, the fight could have been stopped in the first round, honestly. Uh, but Kovalev needed this layup to get back in the win column and get going. And, 
you know, I talked about that Barrera fight with Shabransky. Barrera was dropped in that fight. I think it went seven rounds, and I tweeted about this. You know, it took Barrera seven rounds to dent and, and get Shabransky out of there, and he was dropped in that fight. Kovalev annihilated him. Really, in the first round, that fight was over. So that shows you still the elite level that Kovalev is performing at. Now, Sergey and his team say that all the drinking and partying and the bad eating and bad habits in between fights has gone away. And apparently now that's not happening. And if he has a drink, it's a light drink and he's chilling. He, he's not blowing up in weight. He's not going nuts. He's not staying out of the gym for a month or two at a time. He's staying more active. Okay, but that's only part of it, guys. It's what he does in camp. And I want to see what him and his team are working on. Um, he's with a trainer now, I believe, from Uzbekistan who speaks Russian. Trained a lot of very, very accomplished amateurs there back in the former Soviet Union. So they have that cultural bond and the, the, the language. They're able to speak the same language. And John David Jackson, just a bad matchup for Kovalev in, in a lot of respects. And, and when you look at some of John David Jackson's fighters and their recent performances, I, I just, I'm leaning more and more toward that dude is just an overrated trainer. He's more of a fitness trainer who gets guys in shapes and works focus mitts. I don't know if he's teaching people craft. Hopefully this new trainer for Kovalev can teach him a few things. They can iron out a few wrinkles and work on his rhythm a little bit. One thing about him is his rhythm gets very set and it's easy to break. Once you've got his rhythm down, you can get in there and make adjustments to it. And he, he, he doesn't have a second or third rhythm. Also, there's really very limited inside fighting skills with Kovalev. So let's see if he works on those things. Let's see if he also works on uh, it, better defensive skills on the inside, protecting his body, or at least taking body shots better. And sometimes the best way to take body shots better, guys, is to go to the body yourself. And I did see Kovalev doing that in this fight with Shabransky. So perhaps that's a new wrinkle that we'll see out of him more. One way to get a guy to stop punching you to the body is to nail him to the body yourself. And that's something Kovalev didn't do against Ward. And I'm not talking about low blows. I'm just talking body punching in general. So I, I hope we see more of that from him. Um, he set up the knockout really, really great by going low to the body to Shabransky to bring his guard down a little bit and then went upstairs. And a guy that's standing in front of you with no head movement, that's the way you do it, man. So good stuff from him. But let's not get overly excited, okay? Um, yeah, he's back, back in the win column. But this was a hand selected opponent for him. Whether he fights Barrera next or maybe it's Artur Baturbiev, it's going to be a much, much better opponent, right? And, and Kathy Duvis says he would be back on, who is it, March 3rd in Madison Square Garden. It won't be the theater. It'll be the Madison Square Garden Arena. They're, they're looking to do a bigger fight, which tells me it's going to be a much better opponent. And that'll be March 3rd on HBO. I got to talk about HBO's commentary, though. Max Kellerman couldn't wait until Kovalev got in the ring. He started during the ring walk when Kovalev was walking to the ring, bashing Kovalev to a degree and filleting Andre Ward. I get it. It's part of the story. He is coming back from that loss to Andre Ward. But just some of the HBO rhetoric and it comes off very one-sided and Guys, you, you got to focus on what you have at hand here. And if you're trying to build this fighter up and talk about his story now, 
talking about the Andre Ward thing, and then throughout the fight, they kept bringing it up, bringing it up, bringing it up. It's kind of the same thing they used to do with Vladimir Klitschko talking about his horrible chin. He had this terrible, terrible chin, right? Yet the guy was never knocked out. He was knocked down a bunch of times, but got up. But he went about a decade without being dropped. Yet anytime the HBO commentators would talk about him, horrible chin, horrible chin. Sometimes they get stuck in this narrative and they just stay stuck with it. And I just wish Max would stop acting like Kovalev was dominated by Andre Ward, man. That's not what happened. Sergey Kovalev and Andre Ward shared 19 complete rounds before the eighth round of that rematch, right? The scores, the combined scores of their two fights, the 19 rounds, the, the 12 rounds of the first fight, the seven rounds of the second fight, the combined scores were one judge had, or one combined score was 181-179 for Kovalev. The other two combined scores were 181-179 for Ward. So it was after those 19 rounds, two fights in Vegas, American fighter, their promoter, Rock Nation controlling all of it, all that being considered, to have it basically a split decision, one round difference between three judges when you tally up the scorecards of the first 19 rounds, and then you factor in that Kovalev dropped Ward, man, those were two damn close competitive fights up until that eighth round of the rematch, which we can argue night and day, and everyone will continue to argue the outcome of that. Uh, Andre Ward obviously dominated in that round and ultimately stopped Kovalev technically when Tony Weeks stopped it on a low blow. But, um, you know, before that, pretty much 20 rounds of even fighting between those two. You wouldn't know that from listening to the commentary the other night with HBO, particularly Max Kellerman. But even Roy Jones and Jim Lampley, to a degree, dove in on some of that. Uh, just... They really, really could do a better job. Look, I, I bashed Teddy Atlas and ESPN on some of those top-ranked cards recently. This HBO thing, not much better. Okay, also on that card, Sullivan Barrera wins a unanimous decision over Felix Valera. Both fighters were down in the first. Valera was deducted 1.3 times for low blows in the third, sixth, and eighth. Barrera was deducted one point for low blows in the ninth. Uh, Valera had fought Dimitri Bevel before. Bevel actually fought Valera in his seventh pro fight and beat him uh, every bit as, as dominantly as Barrera did uh, in a much less ugly fight. There wasn't as much grappling and, and uh, low blows and all that kind of stuff. So that shows you how good Bevel is, but also shows you how good Barrera is to handle this guy the way he did. He wins by scores 97-90. 97.89, 97.88, and is now the mandatory for WBA light heavyweight titleist Dimitri Bevel. And these two have been going back and forth, hardcore on Twitter. Guys, follow Dimitri Bevel and Sullivan Barrera on Twitter. They've been going back and forth, and it's getting nasty. I can't wait to see these two fight, and I think they're going to fight early next year. The light heavyweight division right now is just a great division. It is stacked up. And since Andre Ward left, all the titles now, you know, they went up for grabs. Now we got four titleists. The one guy who's the odd man out is Adonis Stevenson. I really don't care about anything the guy does. He shouldn't still have his title. He's a complete non-factor to me, unless he wants to fight one of the other titleists, which he doesn't. So all the other guys, though, 
Good stuff, man. I, I wonder what's going to happen to um, Alexander Gavajdik, though, because now, uh, through the ESPN deal, he's off HBO. So I don't know where he's going to fit into all this. He's going to have to work his way into a mandatory shot to get a fight against for, for one of these titles. That's the only way I see it happening. Also on this card, Yorioka Scamboa wins a majority decision over Jason Sosa. One judge had it a draw 94-94. One judge had it 95-93, which I thought was a fine score. Those two scores I'm fine with. Don Trello, those scores at 96-92. Or in other words, eight rounds to two for Gamboa. Gamboa was knocked down in the seventh round and deducted one point in the tenth round for holding. And he started to look really, really bad late. It started to look like, you know, if this was a 12-rounder, uh, Sosa might, might have got him out of there. It started to just have that kind of look. Really huffing and puffing and doing a lot of running and holding. Don Trella used to be a pretty dependable judge. Remember, he had uh, Canelo Golovkin uh, for, I can't remember if he had it a draw or if he had Canelo winning, but he scored that seventh round, which obviously Golovkin won. Even Adelaide Bird scored the seventh round for Golovkin. He scored that round for Canelo. And to give eight rounds in this fight to Yoriokas Gamboa, I thought you had to be giving Gamboa every benefit of every doubt to give him six, seven rounds. To give the guy eight rounds, that's just egregious. I don't know what fight you're watching. So another bad score from Don Trella, who's just had a bad year, man. Just had a very, very bad year. Also, Monday, today, at the time I'm filming this, November 27th, in Moscow, Russia, a World, box, a world of Boxing Promotions card where Sergei Kuzmin and Amir Mansour were fighting for the vacant WBC international heavyweight title, which would ultimately lead to an eventual title shot against Deontay Wilder, right, to WBC. They, this fight ended in a uh, majority, was it a draw? It ended in the third round. Yeah, it ended in a majority draw. After the third round, after both fighters collided, their you know, head clash, both of them got cut. Kuzmin on the forehead, Mansoor on the eyebrow. So now this worthless title stays vacant. Who gives a damn? Who cares? Neither of these guys. Uh, look, I, I, I like Amir Mansoor, but he's had hard luck, man. It just seems like he's got injured in several fights. Um, Kuzmin, I, I don't really think much of anyway. He's undefeated Russian heavyweight. He's only really about 6'2". He's weighed in the 240s to 260s in his career. Just another fat, chubby guy that's a little too squat to really do much in the division. For Mansoor, man, I, I he just seems that he can't get through a fight without having some kind of weird injury or something like that. Also on this card, Edward Troyanovsky scores a KO1. Um, he was a former... Junior welterweight titleist, and remember, he got just drilled by Julius Ndongo last year. That's how Julius Ndongo won his first world title. He kind of pulled a similar move in this fight. He landed a big right hook that dropped his opponent, gets a KO one win for him. So he's, he's won a couple fights now since um, that bad, bad loss to Ndongo. That's it with all the action around the world, guys. Let's get into the preview of what's coming up this week. Thursday, November 30th, it is another Golden Boy on ESPN card. This is actually on ESPN Deportes and ESPN2. It's from the MGM, uh, MGM National Harbor in Oxon Hill, Maryland. 
very, very close to Washington, D.C. This one is headlined by undefeated 130-pound prospect Lamont Roach, who is actually a D.C. native. Roach is 15-0 with six knockouts. He's going up against Filipino fighter Ray Perez, who is 21-8. This is a 10-rounder. Roach went pro in 2014, had five fights in 2014, four in 2015, three in 2016, and he's this will be his fourth fight in 2017. His last three fights have now been 10 rounders, including this one. So Golden Boy building this guy up the right way. You, know, you start with those four and six rounders, you build a guy up. I like that the Last couple fights before this were 10 rounders and so is this one. So they're slowly but surely building this guy up. For Perez, he's a pretty durable guy. Been in there with some good fighters. Only been dropped once that I can remember. He's been stopped technically twice, but one I think was a retirement. He quit on the stool. His The last loss he had though was a KO7 loss to Jesse Magdaleno back in 2016. We all see what Jesse Magdaleno has gone on to do. So I'd like to see Roach make a statement like that here to get the stoppage and really get make that statement that he's gonna be like Magdaleno. He's gonna be a guy that's gonna move up and, and do some things. He should get a, a stoppage here. I know Styles make fights, but again, Jesse Magdaleno stopped this guy in seven rounds. Lamont Roach, if there's something there to him, we should see a similar type of performance from him. Now, Friday, December 1st in Providence, Rhode Island, there is a Real Deal boxing card, Vander Holyfield's promotional company on CBS Sports Network, so check that out. And this Saturday, December 2nd, we got a couple of cards. In the UK, there's a Cyclone Promotions card, undefeated 140-pound prospect Anthony Yigit, or is it Anthony Yigit, uh, Y-I-G-I-T, who's 20-0-1 from Sweden, a 2012 Swedish Olympian, fighting Joe Hughes, a UK fighter, for the second defense of his European title that uh, he won back in February. But MSG, the actual arena, not the theater, because the Kovalev-Shabransky car was at the MSG uh, theater, this is actually in the arena. It is the farewell fight for Miguel Cotto on HBO. He goes up against... Saddam Ali. This is the first offense of his vacant WBO, um, the vacant WBO junior middleweight title that he won in August against Yoshihiro Kamagai. HBO actually did a pretty nice piece, a little vignette uh, on Miguel Cotto after the Kovalev Shabransky card Saturday. I thought, you know, it, it wasn't their best work, but it was it was pretty entertaining. It showed uh, some different wrinkles, humanized Kodo, who isn't the easiest guy to humanize outside the ring because he's so stoic. He doesn't show a lot of emotion. But Jim Lampley got Kodo to, cr Kodo to cry more than once uh, during their little interview, during that little piece there. It's like a 30-minute little thing. So if you guys have HBO On Demand, or I think they'll probably put it on their uh, YouTube page. They usually do stuff like that. So check it out. It's definitely worth a look. Miguel Kodo. Future Hall of Famer in my eyes, you know, and, and one thing he doesn't get credit for a lot, this is something Steve Kim has talked about, that I kind of forgot about. The New York boxing market was dead before Cotto came onto the scene. It was really dead. It's been dead for a while. I talk about this a lot, how LA has taken over. LA is the mecca of boxing now in North America, really the world. And 
New York was kind of dead. MSG was dead. There were no fights going there. Miguel Cotto built a brand there and Atlantic City. After Arturo Gatti and all that, Atlantic City kind of fell off. And Cotto, just in that market right there, in the New York area, really got that market going again, man. Think of the great fights he had at Madison Square Garden. The great events he had there. Some of them were losses, yeah, but most of them were wins. That's something he doesn't get a lot of credit for. Name a bigger draw in New York City right now. A bigger draw in this last generation in New York than Miguel Cotto. I can't think of one. And those of you who bring up the Barclays cards with PBC, please, you, you don't know what's going on with that situation. The, the, those events are papered, man. But I, seriously, man, Cotto really did reestablish that Puerto Rican boxing market, which is so important, and the New York market. It brought other big fights there. Fights like Golovkin-Lemieux, Golovkin-Jacobs, I think Cotto helped bring those fights there. Think about it. Seriously, think about it, man. You look at Miguel Cotto's career. He fought everybody, guys. And I know he's a diva. And I know his career was carved very carefully when he was back with top rank. And they, he's also had hand-selected opponents after the, the losses to Pacquiao and Mayweather. And he fought Sergio Martinez at the right time to get that win. Martinez was broken. But guys like Andre Ward didn't want to fight Sergio Martinez. They offered him a fight at a catchweight of 164. Ward wanted no part of it. Floyd Mayweather, he wanted no part of Sergio Martinez. Cotto took that risk because that's what Cotto has done in his career. And he beat Martinez. And that ended up being the greatest achievement of his career. Even though we know, guys, yeah, yeah, kind of a one-legged fighter. But still, the fact that he took that challenge when other people wouldn't Shows you the kind of guy Cotto was. At 140 pounds, Cotto won the WBO title, defended it six times. At 147 pounds, he won the WBA title, defended it four times until the loss to Antonio Margarito in 2008, which was his first loss, a devastating loss. And fans will always argue about what may or may not have been going on in that fight. And we really will never know for sure. There's no evidence that anything was going on with Margarito. But we know what happened with him in his very next fight. And when it was discovered that there was an illegal hand wrap, look how he folded against Shane Mosley. So it, it tells you that he was mentally and emotionally shook when, when, when they discovered that. So I, that fight will be argued forever. But technically, it was, a, 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 I think, a poor game plan from Cotto and a bad loss for him. But then he comes back to win the WBO welterweight title, defends that once in, until the loss to Manny Pacquiao in 2009, which was at a catchweight of 145. And then you guys talk about Cotto with some of the catchweight diva stuff. Generally speaking, fighters who start pulling that move later in their career, it's because they were the victim of that move earlier in their career when they were a B-side. And there's a case of it against Pacquiao. But then he moves up to 154, uh, wins a title there, two defenses until he loses to Floyd in 2012. And then he goes up to 160, wins the WBC and lineal title, which he defended once until he lost to Canelo in 2015. How many fighters at that stage of their career would take on a young killer like Canelo Alvarez and do as well as he did against him? That's Miguel Cotto. So again, I know a lot of people want to bash Cotto 
say he lost against the elite-level opposition he faced. The loss against Austin Trout looks bad. I get it, guys. But when you look at the totality of his accomplishments, and then he had a good amateur career, had over 100 amateur wins. I believe he went to an Olympics for Puerto Rico. And I think he lost in the first round, but he was still an Olympian. You know, all that combined, I think it's a Hall of Fame career. Win, lose, or draw against Ali. And he should beat Ali. Even though at this stage, you know, Cotto's 37 years old. Ali's only 29. Cotto's 5'7", 67-inch reach. Ali's 73-inch reach, 5'9". And Ali had that bad loss to Jesse Vargas back uh, last year. He's 3-0 since then against limited opposition. Moving up in weight here, maybe that extra weight will do him good. That remains to be seen. But even with the youth advantage and the size advantage and all that, Cotto should still beat him. What I find interesting is a lot of people are bashing Saddam Ali for being Miguel Cotto's last opponent. Some of the same people who spent $100 watching Floyd Mayweather fight a wrestler in his last fight are bashing Miguel Cotto for fighting Saddam Ali, an actual ranked boxer that would beat Conor McGregor in a boxing match in his last fight on regular HBO. That's the way these things go. Floyd Mayweather fought Conor McGregor in his last fight, charged tens of thousands of dollars for tickets. Miguel Cotto fighting Saddam Ali, a guy who would beat Conor McGregor in a boxing match at Madison Square Garden where regular people can afford tickets. And you don't have to shell out 100 bucks to watch it on HBO. That is the, the, the fickle nature of boxing fans. Do I love this fight? No. I don't love this matchup. But all things considered, guys, considering all the blood, sweat, and tears Miguel Cotto has given you, spanning four weight divisions over the years, can you cut the guy a little slack? I, I, all things considered now. They reached out to Mikey Garcia. Dude was willing to fight Mikey Garcia. I know Mikey Garcia is much smaller, but he's a pound-for-pound -pound level, elite-level type fighter, right? They reached out to several other good quality fighters Golden Boy Promotions wanted too much. They ended up screwing Cotto. Maybe, maybe, and this is a, you know, me just playing Oliver Stone here. Golden Boy Promotions was protecting Cotto at his request, or maybe the request of Freddie Roach, demanding they make unreasonable offers to these better fighters. So that would look like Golden Boy Promotions, it was their fault for those fights falling through. So Cotto could fight a guy like Ali. Just saying, that's the way these things tend to work. And Miguel Cotto and Freddie Roach are not dummies. So that's probably kind of how this thing happened, all right? But considering everything this guy has given for you and to the sport, for this being his last opponent, I'm cool with it, man, all right? Look, on paper, Jeff Horn may have been Manny Pacquiao's last opponent. Better than Conor McGregor, but is he better than Saddam Ali? I don't know about that. Is Jeff Horn better than Saddam Ali? I don't know. So, so let's cut Cotto some slack. Obviously, he's going to win this fight. It'll probably go the distance. He probably won't stop him the way Vargas did. He should, but he probably won't, right? This isn't a prime Miguel Cotto. This thing's going the distance. He gets another title defense in New York. He walks off into the sunset. Good for him. I don't know if I believe him that he's going to retire, but I want to. And five years from now, dude's got my vote for the Hall of Fame. I will support that vote. Also on this card, Ray Vargas is defending his WBC 122-pound title for the second time 
against Colombian fighter Oscar Negrete. Uh, Vargas is 30-0 with 22 knockouts. Negrete is 17-0 with 7 knockouts. I know some of the people in Negrete's camp. I've seen him fight on the LA Fight Club cards a lot. Nice guy. Nice people. But his entire career has been at bantamweight, and he's really still a prospect. Making a, a leap here in opposition against a real proven contender who's fought his whole career at super bantamweight. Vargas is 5'7", 70-inch reach, 27 years old. And for uh, Negrete, he's 5'5", 67-inch reach, and he's a little older. He's 30 years old, even though he has less fights. Vargas looked really good against Ronnie Rios uh, in the co-main of Miguel Cotto's last fight against Yoshihiro Kamagai, where he won that vacant title. So uh, Vargas is kind of riding that Miguel Cotto train, smart matchmaking um, and smart business by Golden Boy to uh, and all the parties involved, Vargas's team, to put him there right with Cotto and try to build him up. Obviously, I favor Vargas in this fight. Uh, just a bigger guy, more experience. But Negrete is a good, solid, honest fighter who's going to give a good, solid, honest effort. But generally speaking, when you see these contender versus prospect matchups, the proven contender wins, and often by stoppage. And I think that's what's going to happen here. Also on this card, Angel Acosta versus Juan Alejo uh, fighting for a vacant interim WBA 108-pound title. All right, guys, that is it. Let me know, do you want to see the Anthony Joshua Black Supremacy rant video? Do you want to see the rant video about why I rate Joe Lewis higher than Muhammad Ali as the number one heavyweight ever? Are there any other rant videos you guys want to see? Let me know. Like, share, comment, subscribe, all that good stuff. Buy a shirt. Visit the Patreon page. Pledge if you can. Get the word out there, guys. I'll see you at the fights.